You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So Paul Krugman is with us, Nobel laureate, economist, New York Times columnist, NYU distinguished professor of economics and professor emeritus at Princeton University's Woodrow Wilson School, author and editor of nearly 30 books. His latest book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. He is in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Paul, so nice to have you here. Welcome back. Hi, good to be back. So, you know, I want to get into your book. I want to first, though, ask you, in a world and a day where we have um, headlines on the virus, we're talking about politics in the Iowa caucus, we're talking about Tesla rallying, we're watching earnings. How do you kind of hone in on what's the most important things for investors, for kind of the world at large in terms of what makes everything tick? Oh, I'm not sure I know that the answer to that. I mean, I try to work on the things where I have something to contribute. So it's a... Uh, so I, I'll look at that. So I did write about the coronavirus, but from the economics point of view, because mm-hmm. I think we know a fair bit now about how the world has changed and about global supply chains. So I'll do that. Uh, uh, and actually, it's it's I'm, I I don't know whether to be scared of, about dying, but I, I'm really quite very concerned about the disruptive effect on business because we have this value chain global economy now. Uh, I'll write about. Uh, you know, political implications of, of, of economic doctrine, fiscal policy, whatever. But it's all kind of, I, I, to be honest, it's a little bit hard to break through. And right. especially, I watch the readers. Uh, and what people want to read at the New York Times these days, um, lately, has tend to be sort of impeachment, how to boil a perfect egg, impeachment, <laughs> grilling with mayonnaise. So it's a mixture of politics and escapism. Right. It's a little bit hard to get my stuff I through. L- right. I love that, though, politics and escapism. Yeah, absolutely. So what inspired this book in particular? Because you do, as you tend to have, a pretty clear uh, idea that, that you're putting out there. But to Carol's point, in a very difficult world to break through. Yeah, well, it is an election year, and that was one consideration. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have also been writing for the Times for 20 years, which mm-hmm. made it, it's been a while since I you know, reprinted. So uh, much, though not all of the book has reprinted columns for over the years. And uh, it just seemed to me that it was a good time to try and pull this together, to right. understand why we're in the, in the political policy mess we're in, and, and also what has worked, because the, we have had some success stories over there. So um, it just seemed like an opportune moment. And so when you went back and sort of looked at, at at the collection, what were the through lines that immediately jumped out at you, and which were the ones that were maybe a little harder to discern? I actually, I've been sh- trying to say this without sounding like I've got a swelled head, though I probably do. But I mean, I think uh, I was surprised at how much stuff holds up. How yeah. long, you know, there have been consistent themes uh, that I've been pounding on for for 15 years now, and it, they uh, most of them are, are still relevant. Most of the work holds up pretty well. Um, it's the, I mean, the, the, the role of government the, in, in making uh, our economy a little bit more humane than it would otherwise be, the role of, of government policy in helping to, to stabilize the economy, uh, get us closer to full employment, all of those things still hold up that the lots of things have not changed that much except that the quality of our discourse keeps on getting worse right well let's talk about that discourse i think this is in your book that where you specifically say ideas that should have been killed by contrary contrary evidence but instead keep shambling along eating people's brains yes that's the that's zombie ideas those are the zombies and i i 
But but speak to this because we have these conversations that you know we grew up in a world of journalism where fact was fact, and you understood that. And I feel like we've gotten away from that. Yeah, facts is part of the issue, although the, it, it it's, it's stuff that just doesn't get through. So the 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 most important zombie in American politics is the belief that cutting taxes on rich people um, is magical and actually pays for itself, and the that has never happened. It has never worked. It has failed again and again, and yet. When we had the debate over the 2017 tax cut, even the alleged moderates, they aren't really, but the supposed moderates within the Republican Party, people like Susan Collins, were saying, oh, I believe that this tax cut will pay for itself and it will reduce the budget deficit. And sure enough, of course, we've got a trillion dollar deficit. It, it, it did what these things always do, which is to blow off the deficit. Right. So the, um, it is kind of hard. Uh, how do you have economic discussions when a large part of the political spectrum is committed to believing things that are manifestly not true. So speaking of the deficits, uh, modern monetary theory, you, you've had some uh, thoughts on that. Uh, you have engaged in some reposts, as it were, uh, around that. Why do you think it has at least captured the imagination at this point? Well, partly. So, I mean, this is, that's really... By the way, the look on your face when I said modern monetary theory, I <laughs> wish I could have snapped that. I don't want to have, because <laughs> at least for the moment, uh, the MMT people and me are on the same side on, right. on, the, on, on the practical policy issues. Um, and in fact, it's also what really drives you crazy, drives people like me crazy, is we're not actually sure what it is. When you try and get a, you know, what, is, what are the fundamental tenets of modern monetary theory and how are they different from what conventional Keynesians like myself would say? And you get very long answers that don't actually seem to consist of complete sentences. Um, and um, a lot of it, is, it seems to be just really sort of inventing new terms for old concepts and uh, coupled with a kind of attitude that says this is all very radical when it actually mostly isn't. So it, it, it's, it, it's, it's kind of crazy making and it's, it's really a distraction from the debates we need to be having. Mm -hmm. Paul Krugman still with us, Nobel Laureate, City University of New York, distinguished professor of economics. His latest book, Arguing with Zombies, Economics, Politics, and the Fight for a Better Future. You were too kind not to correct me, so forgive my mistake. <laughs> okay. All right. So, Paul, great to have you still with us. I do want to go back to the coronavirus because from an economic perspective, from a market perspective, the market still seems to be trying to figure out. But you mentioned this new world that we're living in, this value supply chain, value-based supply chain, I think is what, yeah. is what you said. Help us understand the economic implications here. Okay. So, you know, I, I was, I wrote a column because Wilbur Ross said something truly boneheaded, which is not that unusual, but it was a good jumping off point where he said, this is great for America. Right. Help us compete great with the jobs. Chinese. Uh, and that wouldn't have been totally boneheaded 40 years ago when you actually did have a world where kind of national manufacturing bases competed head to head with each other. But now we're in this world of these complicated interlinked value chains where, um, you know, they, I've got an iPhone in my pocket here. Where was that iPhone made? Well, there, it, the last step was China. Right. But in fact, the, that's the last step of a very long and winding chain. And there are pieces of it that were made in many places and it's been shipped across multiple borders. Um, and in that kind of world, anything that disrupts manufacturing anywhere is actually going to hurt manufacturing everywhere. And so the, the coronavirus, and that's actually, by the way, uh, most, most of the evidence says that uh, actually all of the people who've actually 
done evidence says that the Trump trade war has actually hurt U.S. manufacturing, mm. not helped it. And the reason is because of the value chains. What it did was it disrupted, the, it raised the cost of U.S. manufacturers by raising the cost of, of imported inputs. And the coronavirus is kind of like the Trump trade war on, on steroids. Uh, if it turns out to be as serious as we fear it might be, it's going to be a, a really pretty nasty thing, even for people who are not at all at risk of being infected themselves. I feel like, going back to your book, that we're at risk, too, of kind of creating a better future if we have folks putting out these ideas that have been, you know, disproven, if you will, and that they don't make sense. And we certainly see that among politicians. I do wonder... Do you have faith in maybe the private sector to kind of move things along? Elon Musk, for instance, like him or not, he has certainly pushed forward the idea of an EV um, that many traditional auto automakers, Paul, would have said it's going to take much longer to do. And, and I feel like he's moved up that. So do you have any faith in kind of the private sector moving along some of these ideas? Well, sometimes. I mean, the uh, look, one of the uh, – I, I do say in, in Arguing with Zombies that the, 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 the overwhelming problem the one I have sometimes I ask why isn't it the only thing I write about is is climate change um, and the private sector has actually set us up to solve that problem hmm. we've had this incredible technological revolution in renewable energy and electric vehicles as part of that because it, it it means that we can electrify a lot of transport as well and we can generate the electricity in ways that don't regenerate greenhouse gases and that that technology is already now government policy helped without uh, right. some of the investments that took place particularly under the much maligned obama stimulus we the green energy wouldn't be where it is right now but the private sector also did its part and delivered this great technological stuff. The trouble is, first, that's sometimes not enough, and sometimes the politicians are fighting it. So we have the Trump administration trying to force us to burn coal, even though the private sector really doesn't want the coal anymore. Right. What's the best economic lens to look at the Iowa caucus and the early uh, Democratic uh, vying for the nomination? Boy, I mean, I, I have, by the way, zero idea what's going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and the, uh, but the caucus is, it, it's a you know, it, it's a deeply unrepresentative state and a deeply peculiar. Somebody once said a caucus is an artisanal primary, right? It's a, <laughs> uh, it's it's a really right. bad way to judge what voters actually want, and with a, a highly unrepresentative set of voters. So this is a this is really bad. Now God knows. I mean, it, it's. But let me tell you, it it might be decisive for the nomination, particularly if Biden wins, that may that may be uh, kind of it. Uh, uh, but if he doesn't, uh, then probably slog on for quite a while. But my insight is that it, in terms of actual policy, it hardly matters which Democrat wins, that it, it as long as a Democrat wins the, the general election, um, that Bernie Sanders has a lot of big plans, but in reality, he would only be able to do part of them. And Biden, you know, may be kind of old guard, but he's actually offering a pretty progressive economic program, and his party would force him to go through with that. Right. So the reality is that, that we're going to get a Democrat who, in practice, would be a what Europeans would call a social Democrat, right. uh, would expand the safety net, raise taxes on the rich, and uh, I'm not going to get worked up at all about about who, who ends up at, in, in, you know, in the lead. Well, and one of the zombie ideas that you talk about in your book is the myth of the socially liberal, fiscally conservative voter. So there's a lot of things that are very relevant to today. Well, yeah, there are. I know some socially liberal, fiscally conservative. Yeah, uh, a lot. <laughs> um, I actually tend to uh, encounter, well, I basically encountered them in, in the breakfast meetings at Bloomberg. Right. Um, <laughs> uh, and they, they have an average net worth of, of uh, maybe a, a thousand times mine, at least. Uh, and they all wear gray suits. And they are absolutely not 
There, there is nobody out there. They, they effectively re- represent maybe 3% of the electorate. We just want to spend a couple more minutes with Paul Krugman because we've got him here, uh, obviously teaching now at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. And when you came in, Paul, you and Carol were uh, talking about an interview she did with you down in Princeton. You're now a full-on resident of Manhattan. What do you make of New York City right now? Oh, you know, if if you can afford a place to live, which is the hard part, right. uh, it's a golden age of, of New York City. I mean, crime is low, the cultural richness, whatever your tastes are, is enormous. The the food is better by far than it was when I was growing up. You know, it's, it's a... Uh, um, and, and life is surprisingly easy. Uh, you know, and anything you want is five minutes away. So, uh, no, it's, it, it's, I, I'm a, a huge fan of New York. I even am lo- a fan of the subway for all of its problems. It's a, <laughs> it's a very efficient means of transport. Right. So, um, no, the, I'm, I'm a... Uh, You're a bull. I'm a bull. And, you know, I, I grew up in this new, on Long Island. Sure. And I always thought I would someday grow up to be an, uh, a New York intellectual. And finally, in my 60s, I made it. <laughs> you made it. <laughs> but you made it. Yeah. Which is great. Well, and I do wonder about, um, you know, bringing more people and making it more equal within the city. Do you think that's something that we can fix, whether it's developers' responsibility or whomever? No, we definitely need... It. Housing, uh, affordable housing is probably the biggest single thing that you can do. I mean, there are other things. We, uh, universal pre-K is great, but we should have even more child right. support, and that's something that the city can do. Uh, but building more housing for regular people, um, it's, you know, it's a dense city, but there is, there's, in fact, still plenty of room for that. And that's, right. that's the biggest, you know, it's always going to be a highly unequal city because it's a place where billionaires want to live. Right. All right. Exactly. So there's always going to be th- some of those. Ten seconds, got a favorite part of the neighborhood? In the well, city? I mean, I, because I, I, I live on the Upper West Side, and yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a wonderful place. It's, All right, and you feel we're like you're in the neighborhood. There. Yeah, you do. All right, Paul Krugman, thank you so much. We really enjoyed spending some time with you today.